0: Welcome to CypherSpeak, artifacts, ciphers, and ponities.
1: The gods are dead, now it's your turn. I'm here tonight with my co-host Darcy, who is Datura, a talon shaper who siphons power.
0: And I'm here with my co-host Troy, a humble destroyer who focuses mind over matter. And this is CypherSpeak.
1: So, tonight we're going to talk about the Gods of the Fall setting. Uh, Similar to how we tackled Numenera a few episodes ago, we are going to talk about Gods of the Fall and just give an overview and talk about the things that we like and some cool stuff about the setting and hopefully get you as excited about it as we are. So, just a high-level intro overview to the Gods of the Fall setting before we dive all the way in. Uh, this is a world where the gods were real. They might be coming back, uh, but they, they were real and they watched over the world and everybody knew they were real and that it was really a great place to live. Then a lanitar floundered and fell from the sky and smashed into the world Alanatar is sort of like Mount Olympus. It's where all of the gods lived. So they were kind of all on board when it crashed. And they're now all gone. Uh, Along with the kingdom of Cavazel, which was where uh, Alanatar crashed. Uh, So a huge cataclysmic event. And now the world is known as the afterworld, essentially after the fall. Um, And it is a grim, grim place set 42 years after the fall of Alantar.
0: PCs in this grim, grim world play characters that start to realize that they have a spark of divinity within them somehow. They have powers that are eerily reminiscent of what the old gods, the dead gods, had. And as they start to realize their true destiny and fulfill their latent divine powers they can start to take on the roles that used to be the purview of the old gods those gods can be good or bad but there's certainly an awful lot of uh grim darkness around for them to (laughs) potentially save people from so uh We thought that we'd just start out with by giving some examples of different kinds of pantheons that you could draw inspiration from, because as PCs, you'll be picking dominions, so what kinds of ideas or concepts or elements you are the god of. As the cipher system often is, it's really open-ended, and so we wanted to give you some ideas of really different kinds of pantheons to draw inspiration from. First, I'm going to start with one that I don't know a ton about, but sounds really cool, the Loa of Haitian Voodoo. Uh, One of the Loa here is called the Baron Samedi. So the Baron Samedi looks really cool. So go look up pictures of him. Uh, He's generally the god or Loa or spirit of the dead and resurrection, but also has all these other associations and domains associated with them, uh, like disruption, obscenity, and debauchery, which is pretty delightful.
1: Couldn't ask for much better than that uh, (laughs) list of uh, things in your pantheon. (laughs) I'm going to take one that's a little more traditional, and that is the Olympians of Greek myth. Here you have all these Olympians to pull from. Some of the big ones, you know, Zeus, who is sky, lightning, thunder, law, order, justice, all of those leader of the pantheon type things. Uh, His wife Hera has marriage and family. Then you have Athena, who is wisdom, reason, Apollo, who is light and prophecy, and, and all of them have even more things in their pantheons, and there's many more of the, the Greek gods, both major and minor. But you can look to all of them for inspiration as to if you are a, a god, you know, where is your dominion lie? And you can even mix and match, just because that's the way the Greek gods were divided doesn't mean that's the way you have to match up those uh, various items.
0: For sure, Absolutely. Another pantheon with tons and tons of great examples to draw from is the the gods of Hinduism. So one of my favorites here is Ganesha or Ganesh. This is the one that you've pretty popular. So you may have seen depictions. Uh, It's the god with the elephant head. And there's lots of great stories about Ganesh. But what I like about Ganesha's uh, sort of domain is that, you know, he's depicted as the, the patron of arts and sciences, the deva of intellect and wisdom. But one of his big things is that he is the remover of obstacles. So what I kind of like about this is that for a lot of the Greek gods, we can list, you know, you are the god of noun, 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 and noun. <laughs> Whereas like, <laughs> you can kind of get these, these sentence fragments that you can also be god of, right? Which is pretty cool. So I think there's lots to, to mine from Hinduism and uh, lots of really cool stories about those gods as well.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to look at God's pantheons as having a little more active role yeah. than just, you know, a thing. So, yeah, def- yeah. definitely interesting. Um, and the last one I'm going to uh, just touch on is there are tons of fictional pantheons out there. The Elder Scrolls series has a whole pantheon. Uh, For instance, Mara is the goddess of love and healing. You have all of the various D&D pantheons, Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk, Dragonlance. All of them have their own sets of pantheons and their own sets of things that those pantheons stand for. So all of those are great, great places to go and see what kind of options you might have if you want to be a god of something. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of background on the Gods of the Fall, how it came to be. It was part of the Monty Cook Games Worlds of the Cypher System Kickstarter that kickstarted in March of 2016. The book is written by Bruce Cordell, and it was released in August of 2016. Uh, So this is kind of, I think, the second of Monty Cook Games really like what I consider their second wave of Kickstarters where they really had like the first product of those Kickstarters almost ready to go. To me, that was just really cool that, you know, you backed a Kickstarter in March and you were already getting a piece of the product in August,
0: it was almost overwhelming, honestly. <laughs> it was like, okay, I have all this stuff now. I wasn't really ready for it.
1: It's, it's really cool uh, that they were able to turn all that around that fast.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So to play, you just need the Cypher System Core Rulebook and the Gods of the Fall book. The book has a lot of setting info. It's very heavy on setting, a handful of new descriptors, types, foci, as well as what other foci and descriptors from the Cypher System Rulebook are applicable to the setting. Um and then your standard a bestiary and then some glossary GM advice. The Kickstarter version had a double-sided poster map. I can't remember if that's in all of them or if that was just a Kickstarter exclusive, I'm but not it sure. is really cool. With that, kind of the background of what is Gods of the Fall, a few god-ish ideas. Um, <laughs> gonna jump into some of our favorite things about the gods of the fall. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is the seven prophecies, which is really core uh, to the setting. The seven prophecies were written prior to the fall by the god of destiny, Sudara, it's really interesting that at the time that these were written, there was no real stock put in them because everything was going so great. And the prophecies talk a lot about redemption of law-abiding things, liberation, and and really kind of recovering from a lot of bad things that are happening. So when they were originally written, they were sort of not paid much attention to. But then the fall happened, and most or all of the copies of the prophecies were thought to be destroyed, but now they just show up places. So it's kind of cool that a book just shows up with the prophecies. In I it.
0: love it. Yes.
1: <laughs> However, there is a, a group out there uh, called the Order of Reconciliation that is constantly hunting these books of fate, which has the prophecies, and they want to destroy them. And anyone who has them. So I just really like that these books randomly show up and that there is a group that is out there trying to destroy them. Mm -hmm. Even before getting into like some of the prophecies themselves and all of the awesome things that they can do, I must love a campaign or a set of, or an adventure arc set around. Trying to get to one of these new books of fate that has appeared before the Order of Reconciliation can get to it.
0: Before you've even realized you have the divine spark or something. Right. You know, you just get hired.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Like, and it could be a real, like, frustrating arc where you hear one, you try to go get it, but you don't get there fast enough. Oh, man. You know, and like that That happens like two or three times. And then you finally built up to where the players are just like, we will do anything to get this (laughs) copy. I really love that whole way that 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 works. It's just super that's a good cool. Hook. You know, but then once you kind of have the spark and you learn about the prophecies, you kind of have a choice as a character and as a GM what your campaign is going to be about and what your mm-hmm. character is going to focus on. For instance, if you want to be into the prophecy of restoration and that's what you want your campaign to be about, you can have it be bringing back things that have been destroyed, things in the afterworld that have been destroyed and now are, you, you want to like bring them back, build them back up. So those are very interesting things that you can play with and your character can be really focused on one of those or they can kind of go with the flow. Your story can be really focused on one or do a little bit of all of them. And basically, you're kind of doing your little piece to attempt to save the world. That's really what these prophecies have at their their base.
0: Yeah, it kind of sets the stakes very mm-hmm. well, I think.
1: I just love that that's kind of a, a core thing of the of the setting. It, it just is such an interesting hook to be able to build on and, and drive things forward. So we kind of touched on this a little bit, but people and life in the afterworld... It takes a grim look at a world after an apocalyptic event. You know, it really points out that people who are cruel and look out for themselves and selfish have a much better chance of surviving that sort of event and at
0: least initially, yeah. Yep,
1: and that's a lot of the mindset of of life in the afterworld. It's very very grim and people kind of doing whatever they want and whatever they need to survive to some degree. It's essentially a pre-industrial technology, you know, very much a fantasy type setting, but there's a lot of magic kind of available to the people of the world. Even those who don't have the divine spark have some some magic available to them. Uh, so, you know, to me, it, it felt not quite, but, but similar to, to Eberron, where you have a fantasy world and then, you know, a bunch of kind of magic permeating things. A lot of people live in the large metropolis areas. Frankly, they're not very nice places to live, but it's where people can, can get <laughs> by. The book actually says that it's a little bit like Europe's Renaissance, except everyone is panicked and slavery murder and worse are rampant it has a little bit of that feeling but it's just a bad place so yeah. i think as darcy <laughs> mentioned earlier there is no end of things for a new group of emerging gods to try to fix you know if mm-hmm. if people want to be heroes there is a way to be heroes both on a big and a small scale
0: Definitely. Uh, One thing I would say with respect to sort of the darkness of this setting is uh, in the book, it's sort of portrayed as the very worst that humans have been known to do, right? Like really bad stuff. So if you are going to run a one shot or a campaign or something, this is definitely a setting that you can't fully ignore the fact that like really bad things are happening so i would definitely talk to your players and make sure you're kind of on the same page about what things you want to see on screen and what things you maybe don't want to see on screen and one technology for this that's really good that i use in all my games these days is the x card it's just a simple thing you write a little x on a note card and you put it in the middle of the table you know you have a little talk beforehand of like hey i don't want to see you know, any on screen murder, right, or something, you know, I don't want to see any really grisly things. But in case something comes up that you guys didn't think to talk about, and someone's not comfortable with it, they can just point to that card and you sort of veer away from having that be on screen, you just do something else. There's lots of ways to portray humans being bad. And we can totally portray badness without focusing on the things that make our players uncomfortable in bad ways, right?
1: Yep, absolutely. Uh, And I think two things that we can link to in the show notes is Pandas Talking Games did a great episode on the x card
0: oh great point point.
1: and uh misdirected mark podcast also had a great discussion of of safety and how even when you have all of the safety measures in place we still ultimately have to watch out for our fellow players because sometimes Things happen and we just all need to be as aware as possible. So two great discussions that if you're interested in safety topics in RPGs are are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I haven't really touched on yet is that much of the world is actually known as the Nightland. The reason for this is that when Elendar crashed into the world, it dragged with it a moon by the mm-hmm. name of the Nod. Essentially, it has blotted out or eclipsed the sun permanently. It doesn't move. It doesn't ever get out of the way. It is just always dark. And so this has caused an interesting thing for the nightland and the people there. Most people who are adults now, it was 42 years ago, have never known the light. And this is very much an allegory of they've never known hope. So it's very much a hopeless, dark place. And, and again, that, that just reinforces a, a lot of how the setting is built is saying that it's just not a great place. I, I just think it's interesting when you think about that piece of it, you know, what would it be like if you grew up never having light in your life?
0: Yeah. Um, and one thing they kind of touch on that I thought was interesting is how that would affect the sort of Psychology of people there and sort of the mental states too. People get seasonal affective disorder and things like yeah. that, right? The human bodies uh, react to that thing. That sort of lack of light can can take a toll, and the experience of living in a really traumatic situation also takes its toll. So there's a little bit of setting material that indicates you should portray people as being affected by this. They're not casually taking it in. It's, it is still actively a pretty devastating place to live, and so you as gods to be able to change that makes a huge difference.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Basically, where sort of the eye of Elantar is, you know, where it kind of crashed into the world, it basically now creates its own weather patterns. Yes. And because of the bad stuff that's there, basically (laughs) the weather itself can be cursed. Yes. It's a little bit like a magical version of the Iron Wind from Numenera, right? You get caught out in this driving rain and all of a sudden uh, you may receive a random curse because you were out in the rain at the wrong time. (laughs) I think you can do some interesting things with that, either forcing your players to take cover somewhere where maybe they don't necessarily want to be or mm. um, getting caught out in it, or you know maybe having to save other people from it. Uh, a lot of different things that you can kind of do and, and play with.
0: Yeah, that's, that's right. I hadn't even thought of that as sort of a, a GM tool, right? You can shape the PC experience pretty interestingly with that.
1: Yep, absolutely. You want the PCs to duck into that CD bar that they're standing by, <laughs> but they don't really <laughs> want to go in. Uh, you just GM intrusion that uh, here comes uh, the rain.
0: Oh that's so funny.
1: You can you can get it done if you need to. And so the the last thing that I want to talk about is I just briefly mentioned it and that is the moon. Nod. It is just a huge huge moon possibly there because of a curse from years and years and years before the fall. And it blots out the entirety of the sun over an area called the nightland. So there is just eternal darkness. But the interesting thing about Nod is that it's also the place where dreams live. Yeah. Uh, So if you dream, you go to Nod. You can go there physically or you can go there in your dream state, but either way, it doesn't really matter because if something happens to you in your dream state, it happens in your physical state. So, you know, if you lose a finger in your dream, you wake up and you've lost a finger Mm -hmm. or it could be you find a pile of gold coins and you wake up and you have a pile of gold coins.
0: (laughs) <laughs> you roll the dice. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, you know, for the most part, people try to uh, not dream if they have the means to do so. There is a, a dream dust that they mm-hmm. can take to not dream and, and and not have to worry about that stuff. The only other thing that I want to talk about as far as Nod goes is that there is a a king of Nod. And his palace and the things that he can do is pretty cool. When I was reading through him, I was like, I want my players to encounter him someday just because I want to play him. (laughs)
0: yeah oh man not as a great character and and weird landscape for players to potentially go to
1: and he just i mean he basically he comes off as a great guy and really nice and very helpful but essentially all he wants to do is trap dreams there so that he can feed off of them Mm -hmm. um i love his his character and some of the cool things he can you know sit the people down at a never-ending feast so they just eat forever and be happy about it that's kind of the the Big highlights that I picked out of Gods of the Fall. I mean, there are, are a ton others, and I'm sure that Darcy is now going to share some of her favorites with us.
0: For sure. There's a lot to love here. It is uh, for a little book that's packed full of great art and things. They, they really did pack in a really evocative uh, setting and some cool mechanics, too. And I mm-hmm. think there's a lot to love there. So I'm fortunate enough to be playing Datura, as I was introduced in, in the episode. (laughs) So um, I'm playing a character who um, is kind of like a Spelunky, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider sort of person. I was leaving some ruins and a shadow followed me out. And so there's a lot of mystery there. And um, I'm starting to find out that I too have have godlike powers. So um, I'm really enjoying it. And I'm really enjoying interacting with the, the sort of character sheet has been doing for me. You know, I think how to... Mechanically deal with gods uh, is really interesting, and I think they do a really good job of it in uh, Gods of the Fall. And so they they talk about power shifts and things like that in the, the Cypher System core rulebook, sort of how to represent you being really powerful at certain things, and those are dealt with well here. So I'm going to bounce around some of the things I liked. You know, I think one important element is how they deal with magic items, right? It's a cipher system. What the heck is a (laughs) cipher in Gods of the Fall? You know, we said that Alanitar was sitting up in the sky, up in the ether, where all the gods lived and hung out and, you know, schemed and things and uh, meddled with human life. And then it crashed down 40 some years ago, and it splintered into a whole bunch of pieces and and these little shards. And so there are these divine shards sitting around also known as gods tears and they can kind of take on different forms but fundamentally they're little chunks of the world of the gods that have fallen to earth and are scattered around and one thing i really like that it says in the book is that pcs can find these and they can use them and they work like ciphers as in other games you know they can restore pool points or let you do some weird ability or make you invisible lots of things they can do right But um, there's a rumor that if you liberate enough of them, so if you use enough (laughs) of them, you will be returning the essence of Alannatar back... Maybe into the ether, and what might happen if you reach some sort of maximum capacity there? Elanatar may come back, or maybe something else will come back. But uh, I just thought that was a really cool campaign goal too. Is like, all right, go find as many freaking ciphers as you can, and use them all really fast, <laughs> and try to bring back Elanatar. So, so that's what ciphers look like, and kind of what they do. But. Of course, this is a cipher system. There are limits to how many you can carry around. So in addition to the you want to use them because maybe you want to restore a lanatar, the reason you don't want to keep too many around without using them is because, you know, in Numenera, they sort of interact and, you know, the bad energies don't work well together. But in Gods of the Fall, if you have too many ciphers of these little shards, ravers come attack you which is horrifying and amazing <sighs> and much more like intense than just like a cypher malfunctions so ravers are these uh horrific husks of dead gods that all swirl around in the eye of alanatar and they sort of hang out where their shards are and they are horrible and senseless and give you curses and are i still haven't read enough to know like Exactly what Raver's deals are, and I don't think they're super well detailed, but basically they're horrifying creatures that are the husks of dead gods, and uh, if you carry too many ciphers on you, they come uh, try to kill you which is a pretty good motivator to use those ciphers, guys. <laughs> there are artifacts, too, and uh, these come across more like classic old magic items, right? And so presumably a lot of these artifacts are going to be things that were blessed by the gods that somehow didn't decay or perhaps they're powered by something that is still stuck around. So you get invisibility cloaks and magic swords and uh, you know things like that. So you can lean on classic fantasy for that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your character's trajectory. As you're tiering up, like in any cipher system game, you get XP for discoveries or jam intrusions. You use that XP to buy advancements, things like adding points to your pool and adding edge. So you get those, those four steps of tier advancement before you go to the next tier. But in Gods of the Fall, you still have to do those, but you can't actually move to the next tier officially until you've completed a like godly obligation. It's sort of slowly doling out you getting comfortable with your godhood, right? Um, or getting comfortable with slash earning slash building yourself up as a god. One of the first things you do sort of around tier one is you're messing around as a PC who maybe is just starting to realize that they're kind of special And by the time you get to tier two, you have to have picked your dominion. That's, you know, what we were talking about earlier. Things like, I'm the god of blank. So I'm the god of war, of pottery, of messengers, rulership, hearth, things like that. Um, Snails. Snails. One thing I haven't seen dealt with in the book, but uh, at our game that I'm in right now, we've said that you can kind of have a couple dominions. If you want to, you can have like a suite of related ones or, you know, we're going with that Greek laundry list of I'm the god of... (laughs) these 25 things. (laughs) Um, We sort of pick the main one that we're thinking about, but you can have these multiple dominions. We'll see how that works. I think it should work fine mechanically. And then at second tier, you pick your symbol. And at third, you choose your first labor. So it's like your first big activity as a god that proves you're doing good things, big important godly things. So you could save a child or destroy a cursed artifact. Fourth, you define your dogma. So it's like if you want to be a worshiper of me, you should behave like this, you know, like followers of Darcy, the god of pottery, uh, should, should always appreciate art, you know, things like that. And uh, fifth, you have to start converting a bunch of believers. And sixth, you have to enact a divine labor. So something huge, right? I'm trying to think of what a good divine labor would be. Maybe you Maybe you banish the moon of Nod. Maybe you return light to the nightland. It could be something crazy big like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that might be up on the higher end of divine labors. But uh, yeah, and one thing the book says that I thought was interesting is you don't have to like dole out those obligations necessarily in sync with how you're leveling up. You can, but you don't have to. So you could know your dominion and your symbol and have done your first labor really early, or you could... So as you're tearing up and as you're doing these obligations, to get your, like, god powers that they give you, um, your dominion powers, powers, you have to have completed that obligation to earn that for that level. So your dominion powers are really cool because, you know, there's some selections of them. You can, like, make your aura manifest and inspire people. You can do kind of godly things is basically what what they are. But what's really nice about them is that Their cost in pool points can come from any pool. So you can't nerf yourself because you balanced your pool points funny, right? (laughs) You're a god, you're a god of this tier. Here are the powers you get. Use them with from whatever pools. I think you can apply different edges to it. So those are pretty neat things to get. And then starting at tier two, you also get divine shifts. So these are like your supers power shifts, right? So at certain things, at certain kind of narrow tasks, you have free levels of effort in them functionally. You're way better at them. And so for your divine shifts, they give you a list of starting at tier two kind of know you're a god you get three divine shifts right away and you can spread them between things like take a divine shift in accuracy so all attack rolls are a level easier to make or you could do dexterity you can take a divine shift in dexterity which is like i'm better at all movement acrobatics initiative and speed defense skills these can also stack if you really just want to be i don't know what's a super murdery god you know, Zeus's hammer or Zeus's lightning or something. Zeus took some some divine shifts in the attack of I shoot it with my lightning, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he's stacked a bunch of those up. So it is many levels easier to hit, and it also does many more points of damage. So you can spread those out in interesting ways, which is really cool. So with respect to divine shifts, you get some interesting party imbalances. You have one person who is super combat-focused. They have all these divine shifts in I Hit It With My Hammer. And then you have these other players where they have all their divine shifts in things like intellect and sort of knowledge, things like that. And so that can present some interesting challenges to GM for, especially if people aren't there when you expect them to be at the session. And so look forward to our episode that's going to be on high tier and sort of high powered play because we give some suggestions on how to how to run that. One thing I thought of, uh, and Troy, you can weigh in on this, especially with divine shifts, they give you a list of shifts that you can pick from But because the cipher system is really open about what kinds of skills you choose, most of these are related to skills. I almost think you can modify what kinds of divine shifts you have and and think up some new ones at your table without breaking the game too much. I'm not sure what you think.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think that you can tailor those to whatever really makes sense. I, I think that the one thing to just be careful of is to not allow them to become too broad you know, is probably right. the, the biggest thing there, right? You know, if the divine shifts are in persuasion, for instance, you probably wouldn't want to necessarily allow a character to have a divine shift in all social interaction.
0: Right, definitely. Take into consideration how broad or narrow the skills you're tying together are. And I think that's something you can just watch for as, as they're cheering up and talk about as a group. Yeah, I don't think it should be too game-breaking, but um, that's the place where it would break if it is going to be (laughs) game-breaking.
1: Yeah, yeah, but yeah, other than that, I think you have a lot of flexibility over what skills you want to provide or allow people to have.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've been enjoying the heck out of playing my character. We are just about to tier up to two, and so we had a really dramatic moment where someone got their tier two ability and did a cool thing. You know, and it feels very different from supers with all the obligations and and things. I've been enjoying the heck out of the setting and uh, the mechanics of it, too. So that's our little intro to Gods of the Fall. There's lots more to love. Any last words, Troy?
1: Two things. I I really love the whole tier, dominion, power advancement pieces. Uh, Tying it to a character arc, I think, is a, a cool thing. To do and the other thing is is that I wasn't a hundred percent excited about the gods of the fall, you know kind of during the Kickstarter mm-hmm. but once I kind of got it and seen, just how dark it was, uh, mm-hmm. and just it so much more interesting and evocative than I thought it would be. So, I think it's a great setting, and definitely really interesting to to run some adventures there. I've only played a one shot, so I definitely am interested in some more Gods of the Fall at some time in my future.
0: Yeah, I would definitely recommend giving it a shot, even if its initial pitch didn't grab you, because this is a really neat setting. And I think there's lots to grab for other types of games, too. Like the setting is very cool, even if people weren't becoming gods. There's lots of rich setting detail. There are bibliomancers. I don't think we've mentioned that. Yeah, I don't think so. Book sorcerers. It's pretty (laughs) great. Yeah, there's so much
1: stuff. (laughs) so with that, uh, we can jump into our podities, uh, for this week. And, uh, mine is actually, I think that we've mentioned him before, but Mark Plord has a blog, uh, inspiration strikes, and he did several post long series of gods of the fall content, all kinds of great stuff for gods of the fall. Um, I know that Mark is really passionate about gods of the fall. He really likes a lot of the, the, the things about the setting and uh, if, if you want some extra stuff for your Gods of the Fall game or inspiration for a Gods of the Fall game, uh, Mark's blog and those series of posts are definitely a great place to, to check it out. And we'll at least link to one or two of them uh, in the show notes and you can find the rest from there.
0: Yeah, for sure. I took a look at it today, and he's he's even got kind of hacks or different takes on Gods of the Fall, but it's the Wild West and things like that. it. it yeah. There's a ton of good stuff in there, so definitely go check those out. My podity this week is a little personal shout out to Amankai Kugler. She's my GM for Gods of the Fall. I was a bad cipher system junkie. I hadn't really read the book before I went into her campaign, and she really made that setting come alive um, and, you know, has integrated it all very well and she's just a rock star GM. I think this is her first campaign. She's going to be GMing at Gen Con with Contessa. She's also going to be possibly GMing somewhere else. She's teaching belly dancing lessons and she's working with Acrobatica Infinity doing circus performances. She is a standout GM. She is so good. So if you get a chance to be in one of her games, definitely take it the first chance you get. She is wonderful. Um, I'm really grateful Grateful for getting so excited by her depiction of this world. So yay. Thank you, Amankai. Nice. So that's our episode this week. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. We always appreciate you listening. As always, you can reach us at, uh, or actually not as always, so <laughs> new thing. You used to have to go hunt down Tori myself on Twitter, but now you can reach us at Pod. So we have a fancy new Twitter account. Please come say hi and follow us and... Uh, that's where we'll be tweeting out our cipher someones
1: yeah and so if you are are on the Twitters, feel free to hit us up with the cipher someone uh, hashtag and uh, we will do our best to give you a cipher sentence of your very own. We're starting to do those again. We have a backlog that we're going to start working through uh, but definitely feel free to submit your name for the list.
0: We always spend way too much time thinking of them so <laughs> <laughs> our apologies for uh, being slow. As always, we would love your feedback in any form, you know, positive, negative. Um, we'd love suggestions for artifacts, ciphers, or podities that you have that you'd like to, us to give a shout on the on the show or to discuss. You can reach us by tweeting at us at cypherspeakpod, or you can email us uh, CipherspeakPod at gmail.com. You can leave comments on the episodes at cypherspeak.com, which redirects to our website wonderful darling network misdirected mark full of other great podcasts that you should check out Um, and we always appreciate if you would subscribe to our podcast um, and rate it on iTunes if you get a chance and thank you so much for everyone who has already rated us nicely and said nice things to other people about it and who's listened Uh, it just means the world to us thank you so much so Troy if someone asks if you're a god what do you say
1: yes (laughs) Uh, so for Senda The line that we just did about if someone asks you for God, you say yes, is from the 1984 movie Ghostbusters, and that was a movie about paranormal investigators, and they caught ghosts. So just so you know, Cinda, that's that's what that reference was from.
0: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) C-Y-P-H-E-R, speak pod. Um, I don't have to spell that out. That doesn't make any sense. I'm going to edit that out. (laughs) Uh, But we have a fancy new Twitter. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) My God. (laughs) My gods. Uh.
1: Cypherspeak is a member of the Misdirected Mark podcast network, the media arm of Encoded Designs.